Hi, this is Paul. Video. Tom Holland. Stephen Meyer. Douglas Murray. All-in-one Hoover Institute video. I'm going to start it where Tom Holland... Um, it's interesting listening to Tom work this line because he's obviously been... He's been... When did Dominion come out? Three years ago? Something like that. He's been talking about these themes on many different podcasts and many different venues all over the place. And part of what's fun to listen to someone do this is they continue to sort of refine and sharpen. And in every context that they give this little talk, it's always a little bit different depending on who they're with. And so he starts kind of a nice take on the secular here. And um, on his thesis of dominion, basically about this process in Christianity of that there's sort of a uh, a dis getting you know the, the more you drill down the more it's it's sort of like a disenchanting process within Christianity. Now I've I've been listening to I'm getting ready for the Verveki. Uh, Jordan B. Cooper conversation that is happening tomorrow. And a lot of what I think, at least on John Verveke's side, John is getting at is he, he wants to, I mean, his religion that's not a religion is an attempt to re-enchant the world in a scientifically credible way. That's a project that a lot have wrestled with because a big part of the meaning crisis is the recognition that we we can't live <laughs> it a disenchanted world breeds nihilism but there are obviously some deep contradictions in there with respect to once the world is within our grasp, it's um, yeah. It was the um, the intro. Oh gosh, I can pull it up. It's not from the master and his emissary. It's from the uh, the divided brain and the search for meaning. Why are we so unhappy? By Ian McGilchrist. Uh, just the 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 little quip from Barfield. How is it that the most able man? becomes to manipulate the world to his advantage, the less he can perceive any meaning in it. This is a paradox that has often been noted and sometimes been attributed to fundamental perversity, a sort of pure cussedness in human nature. The world has changed since the philosopher Owen Barfield wrote those words 35 years ago, but the paradox, as he calls it, has gotten no clear, uh, no near being resolved, while the evidence has continued to accumulate that his hunch was right. Our increasing ability to manipulate the world does indeed appear somehow connected with its loss of meaning for us. Why? And does that even matter? So let's, let's drop into this. I've been corrected. <laughs> you Fiesole. got corrected. <laughs> Here's what I discovered walking around Florence. The place is down the hill. The place is mob. But the churches are beautiful, and they're cool, and they're empty. Lovely place to go for a walk. What do you make of that? Well, I, I, I see the, um, the repudiation or the, the decline of institutional Christianity. Uh, the paradox is, my paradox, <laughs> for what it's worth, is that that in itself is an expression of 
the distinctive character of, let's call it Western Christianity, Latin Christianity. Um, at, at the molten core of Christianity is the idea that you can be born again, that um, you can be washed in the baptismal waters and emerge a new being. And what happens very distinctively in the Latin West in the 11th century through the 12th century is that this paradigm is applied to the whole fabric of society. It becomes the ambition of, of radicals who seize control of the bishopric of Rome, the greatest um, see in the Latin world, that they will, they will cleanse the whole of Christendom, that they will uh, purge the, the radiant white robes of the church from the grubby, pouring hands of kings and emperors who also claim a stake in the dimension of the supernatural. And over the course of the Middle Ages, we see twin dimensions emerge. One of these dimensions is what, since the time of Augustine, has been described as the cyclum, which literally means the, the flux of time, people born on the flux of time heading towards oblivion. Um, that is the fate of fallen mankind. What can, how can mankind be redeemed from that? Well, it can be redeemed by the religio, the bond, that can be join us to the eternity of heaven. And that is what the church provides. So for the reformers, there are these twin dimensions of the cyclum and religio. And over the course of the Middle Ages and then into the Reformation and into the modern period, this emerges to become idea of, of the secular and then of there being something called religion. But and, and so you have the, the connection between, I mean, for Vakey, we'll talk about the two worlds mythology. Um, what happens in the Middle Ages is that the, the kind of the lava of that initial rebellion, that initial process of reformatio, of reformation, calcifies. And the rebels of one age become the elites of, a, of another. And this generates the revulsion Luther's revulsion, Calvin's revulsion, that generates the Reformation. And um, in the Reformation, you see what early Christians... And, and I think this, this issue will be a big piece of uh, what we're going to talk about with, with Jordan Cooper and John Verveke. ...had done towards the Roman world, the, 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 the tearing down of idolatry, the banishing of superstition. Only now it is... The, the Roman church that is seen as something to be torn down. Mm. That is a kind of abiding Christian impulse. Moving into the, the Enlightenment, into the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, you see exactly these same instincts, only now it is, it's not just the Roman church that is the target of this, this, uh, this, this repudiation. It's the whole fabric of Christianity. But the instinct, the paradox, say, of the French Revolution is that when the revolutionaries are tearing down the, the, the privileges and the, the, the fabric of the church. Renaming Notre Dame, what was it, a Temple of Justice? Temple of Reason. Temple yes. of Reason, right. right. Yeah, um, they're doing it for deeply, deeply Christian reasons. And that's why, I, I mean, I said at the beginning of this that there is, I think, a kind of inherent trend within Christianity that moves towards atheism because, you know, even before Christianity, the impulse of the Hebrew prophets is to condemn the gods of the Egyptians or the Babylonians are so much stock or stone um, and tell people that there are, you know, there is no divine manifest in springs or on the top of hills. The, the reformers are doing that in the Reformation. Um, materialist scientists now are doing that. The, the, the process of banishing the super, of desacralizing the world is an incredibly Christian one. Surely we have to... Now, of course, the 
at the same time, the Hebrew prophets are talking about the living God, and Luther and Calvin will in some ways fight the Church of Rome over which church is is the one where the living God can be found. I think, sure, I say surely as if I'm sure of this. I'm not. Uh, Rene Girard would draw the distinction between Christianity proper and hyper-Christianity, which seizes upon, and, and this was Girard's, the point you just made, as far as I understand it, was extremely close to, if not exactly the same point that Rene Girard was making, which is that hyper-Christianity is actually quite dangerous. There's a notion of egalitarianism in Christianity. The communists take that, and take that value and blow it up and lose the sense of proportion, lose the, lose the larger it context of values. It becomes a secularized yes. form of religion so, that so, has so no... Doug and you can listen to Tom's treatment of communism on some early episodes of The Rest is History. No rights in the War of the West, as Christianity has withdrawn, so one new religion in particular has found its way into the cultural mainstream. It is the new religion of anti-racism. With other grand narratives collapsed, the religion of anti-racism fills people with purpose and a sense of meaning. And, and I think while that's true, what we've seen is that many different religions rush in and fill people with a sense of meaning. And so then what happens is that spirituality and religion itself is defined as that which rushes in and fills us with a sense of meaning, making then in many ways, the Peterson for Vakey conversation dropped. I haven't had a listen, chance to listen to the whole thing. But it, it gives people a sense of whatever feels meaningful is my religion. And so you have... You have all sorts of crazy religions. So I'm, I'm now in season uh, three of Rami. And uh, at one point, he has to get a jewel. Spoiler alert, he, he really starts to succeed in the jewelry business um, and even gets a little distance from his uncle. He has to get a jewel for someone who wants to implant a jewel in his forehead. And that person, um, his identity is an elf. I'm so I'm so tempted to go and hit another video that Rod sends me so much good stuff. But um, the the issue here with wokeness and anti-racism isn't just the content of the thing. It's the observation I made a while ago with James Lindsay's watching a conversation he had with Benjamin Boyce. It's it's the thing you can't deconstruct. It's the frame. Um, it's the frame that you have. In many ways, the frame has to be sacred. To eliminate. This is um, one of the greatest revolutions in human history, uh, in my view. And the outcome was wow. the emergence of what I call the unigender. The unigender is a sex, a genderless person, someone who identifies less with social constructs such as gender, stereotypical male or stereotypical female, and identifies much more, for example, with a career, or with a lifestyle, ah. or with a sexual preference or orientation, rather than with gender. Gender was an organizing principle. Gender is performative. It's a social construct. It's actually a script. Mm -hmm. It's a form of acting. And so now we have different other scripts. 
So studies by Lisa Wade and many other scholars are showing that women are defining themselves as masculine, while men didn't complete the transition from masculine to feminine. And this is called the stalled revolution. Women have become men, but men have remained men. End result, we have so, a single so gender. So, so let me, when you say that, when you say it, that, that's taking it away from the social construct of what a man does and who he is and, and what have you, because before, up until recently, um, we had all sorts of, a, as you say, a script for what men were, identifying by what they did, their jobs, their roles in the family, etc., and likewise with women. With the erosion of that, with both sexes having, you know, with a lot of crossover... If you take yourself away from those constructs, from those definitions, like a man puts out the rubbish and does what have you, you then become what floating between the two. Because what, what I find is interesting in many African societies, before colonialism, before uh, invasion, and all before slavery, because the tribe had to work together to get the harvest in, they couldn't, you know, one lot do one thing and one lot do another. Everyone had to work together. The constructs of, of male and female that we have in the West that we recognise, they weren't like that. And so you had many, quote unquote, genderless people that you looked at and you couldn't I readily identify as being a male or a female because people enveloped both sides just to just so the tribe could my guess that pretty early on the male and the female knew exactly who the other ones were <laughs> for reasons that seem abundantly clear to uh anyone of reproductive age anyway the, the point there that that there is a you know, Douglas Murray makes the point about anti-racism as a new religion. Religions are, in many ways, the arena that we live within. And we, we can't escape it or avoid having to live at least within some arena. And so for, you know, anti-racism has, has, has become a large one. Anti-very many things. But again, all these anti-things are, are parasitic in that you can only be an anti-racist if racism continues to have more ontology than anti-racism because once racism is gone, the antis, poof, they lose their identity and they lose their existence. We'll go back to this. Christian belief, how to put this, we cannot go back to a pre-Christian world. That at a minimum is... Uh, Tom's point is that at a, yes. at a very well, minimum. Well, right? we can. In, in other words, you, it's, it's very difficult to retcon away many of these movements that we've been, uh, it, it's, the, these movements have retconned the world in a way that you really can't go back. And at least at this point, and, and Tom's about to make the point about, they're about to have a little discussion about communism and, and Nazism, because in many ways, the Nazi revolution was an attempt to to go back to a much more a, a, a fervent Nash naturalism where the survival of, you know, it, it was sort of a social Darwinianism uh, put to the ultimate test. We've, and we've tried it in, in certainly in Europe with mm. fascism. 
fascism was on one level deeply, you know, it was fascinated by the future. It was fascinated by tanks and airplanes and shiny new equipment, but it was also deeply backlogging. There was a conscious effort to go back to the pre-Christian well, world. Yes. So Mussolini is identifying with, with, with Augustus and Hitler, actually unlike Himmler, Hitler was, was, was very much identified with both the Greek, the classical Greeks and the Romans. He saw them as, as, as Aryans. And Freud, 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 Freud written in that statement that, that the Nazis were not, were, were some kind of harkening back to the, to the folk, sure, the pagan yes. past, well, yes? Yeah, and, and by the way, I'd just add one other thing to that, um, which is what, what the, a point that David Berlinsky's made in, in, a, in a book, that actually, you know, if you look back at the 20th century, what, what is the one thing that the, the murderers, uh, gangs of Pol Pot, Hitler and Stalin and every other despot of the 20th century, what's the one thing they all had in common? None of them thought that God was watching. But, Douglas, I, I, I would distinguish the Nazis from those inspired by communist ideology. Yeah. Communist sure. ideology bears the DNA of Christianity. That was millennial. Yes. Yeah, because, millennial because it's all yeah. about the last will be first, the first will yeah. be last. Yes, yes, you know, yes, Dives yes. and Lazarus, right. it's all that. Yeah, it's a the secularized about, form of Christianity that, yeah. that denies yeah. that God is watching and with, with all deep, things are, are With lawful. a deep strain yeah. of the apocalyptic, yeah. this idea yeah. that the world can be born again, uh, that New Jerusalem can be born. Mm -hmm. The thing about the Nazis is that unlike the French or the Russian revolutionaries or the Chinese revolution, well, the French and the Russian revolutionaries who were, who were bred of the matrix of a Christian society, unlike them, the Nazis consciously repudiate not just institutional Christianity, but the fundamental values of Christianity. Right. And they, right. Right. you know, Paul says there is no Jew or Greek. The, the idea of a kind of universal human dignity is fundamental to Christian ideology. They reject As that. As to Marx, but not to the Nazis. Yeah, right. but, uh, and also the other, the other core one, of course, that they reject is, and I said that the, the, the image of the cross symbolizes the idea that the, the tortured triumphs over the torturer. That is not what the Nazis believe. No. The Nazis believe that the strong should crush down the weak. And they do it for, for, for the Nazis, do it not because they want to be wicked or evil, they do it because they think that is what is morally justified. If if I could make a couple of points, quickly, one thing is it's noticeable that we've devolved onto the discussion of the Nazis, but there's a reason, which is that we also live still in the shadow of that. We certainly do. And, and Europe, where we're currently sitting, lives under a previous shadow as well. When Pope Benedict visited England, my friend Rabbi Jonathan Sachs uh, gave an address to Pope Benedict in which he said something very important. He said, the peoples of Europe didn't lose faith in God just simply because they lost faith in God they lost faith in the idea of the peoples of God being able to get on with each other. Europe, as people know, in the 16th century was a, a hellish demonstration of the fact that religion brought war, brought turmoil to societies. In the 20th century, we have to work out how we have God after this, and we're still working that out. We we're nowhere near a conclusion if we could ever get to one. But it's, 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 it's interesting that everything must always be polluted by it because it's another one of the reasons why the peoples of Europe and the peoples of the Christian such world moved away from God. That's so, such an interesting... Now, I think, that's, I, think that's a, I think that's a great point and it brings in the point of pluralism. There's, there, there's a part of why you have... I think my mic's a little hot. Part of why you have a frame and a communal frame is so that not only that the people can cooperate and work together, 
but it's very difficult to to have a frame that affords both enchantment and productivity without deep agreement on the frame. And, and part of why sort of the, the woke collage of agendas and ambitions is inherently unstable is because many of the frames are contradictory. You can't both... Um, for women and not know what a woman is. Um, you can't be anti-racism and also have, let's say, black pride. Because in, in one way or another, there's going to have to be a way in which multiple agendas can work together under a larger overarching agenda. And anti-bias, of course, can't live in a world where biases are necessary to, let's say, have a marriage or a relationship or prefer um, in some way prioritize the, your resources for your child over ch the other people's children, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that's one of, the, one of the reasons that we've seen attempts to sort of see certain agendas reach the top. They always break down a couple of years ago. I, I made a video that said basically God is the frame of all frames because you need, you're going to have a hierarchy and you're going to need to have something on top of that hierarchy that not only, that brings order to all of the other, all the other agendas. Um, of course, Augustine talked about this in terms of ordered loves. You need your, you need your loves in proper order. If you have your loves in the wrong order, um, bad things happen. Tim Keller has applied this many times in in his sermons where he'd talk about, you know, if you, I mean, God is in a sort, sort of the way, it, it, God is easy to have on top of the hierarchy because by definition of, 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 of the variety of definitions of, of what we mean by God. Interesting observation, Douglas, because in essence he's saying that we, we've lost faith in God because we've become disillusioned with ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, there was an interesting piece in the New York Times a couple summers ago by Ross Douthat, the very uh, thoughtful columnist there, who is also, uh, I think, a Catholic uh, believer. Mm -hmm. And he was raising the question, and it's the same question I'd like to raise, which is, on, uh, given all that's happened in the past and given the human failures and the, and the wars of the last century, um, is it yet still possible to rethink the God question? because we didn't reject God because of a lack of evidence for the reality of God in creation or in our world. There's an, there is a, rather in, instead, an there's an intellectual antecedent. There's the, the, the enlightenment in the 18th and 19th century. There's the 19th century scientific materialism. But then there's also this background of, of uh, the, the human nature. Part of the challenge and the It's difficult having undeconstructed, reconstructed Christians in this space sometimes because I think, I, I don't know if they can fully own up to the challenge that both Tom Holland and Douglas Murray face. And, and I don't say that as a skeptic because I am not a skeptic. But in many ways, the 
the narrative character of God that is um, that we that we find in the Bible that we um, imaginally I'm using Verveke's words that we imaginally engage in the world with from the Bible. Um, th- this this God for for individuals have to has to in a sense be battle tested. The individual is going to have to work through the various things, and I'm not saying that that Stephen Meyer hasn't worked through those things. I don't know his story particularly, and I'm sure Esther will jump in and uh, correct correct me where I'm wrong, which which I'm grateful for. But so often in these, especially conservative spaces of many religious people, we sort of wade in quickly and say, "But God, but God, but God," and I say, "Yes, of course, God," but in the in, in in the person who is comfortable within Christianity, it's an easy thing to say. And, and I'm not saying Christians shouldn't say it. We, we have nothing else to say. But some appreciation, and I'm very interested. I haven't gotten past this point yet in the video. I'm very interested to hear what, what Douglas and Tom are going to say because we've listened to plenty of Douglas and Tom. Douglas, when he talked to Peugeot and Peterson and Tom... In, in many different in many different interviews, they the God as presented by Christians like myself, for whom I don't, you know, while while we all struggle with with doubts and challenges, I've been seamlessly raised and live have lived within it so that I have no. I won't say no difficulty, but very little difficulty with the God of the Bible and that narrative and that character. Um, it's it's not been it's not been ravaged for me. But you know, Douglas and Tom are very much struggling in that. The problem expressed in the religious wars, but if we look at the evidence itself. Um, Historical or scientific? I mean, scientific evidence. All right, and I and also think there's been a great shift in philosophy away from you know there these, these very facile disproofs of the possibility of the miraculous by people like David Hume and the Enlightenment. I think those are you know, most philosophers regard those as, as very weak arguments indeed. But um, I think the scientific evidence to me, I, I had a long myself tortu- tortuous uh, religious conversion. It took about seven years. It was anything but a Damascus Road experience. You know, I overthought everything. Answered. Great. Super, carry on. Everything, but finally settled. And, uh, and it was soon after that that I began to encounter uh, these scientists at major meetings who were themselves having intellectual conversions to some form of theism and later even to, to Christianity. Alan Sandage, a notable figure, a great uh, longtime Jewish agnostic cosmologist whom I heard speak early in my scientific career. And he shocked the audience by explaining how he had come to a belief in God not in, not in spite of the scientific work that he did, but in large part because of it. He was one of the scientists who was documenting the expansion of the universe. And Douthat in this piece in the New York Times two summers ago said, you know, look, in light of some of these developments, he was talking about, he, well, the one he, he cited was the, the fine-tuning argument that the physicists are talking about, that the universe not only had a beginning, but it's been finely tuned against all. Now, my assumption, having listened to some of Stephen Meyer's before, some of you might say, well, well, what God? Well, which God? Well, well, what aspect of God? And the, um, I, I, would, I would imagine what the tree that we're barking up is a purposive God. 
a God who has will, a God who intends, a God who plans. And, and this is exactly the, the difficulty that many bump up against because they say, well, there seems to be too much chaos in the universe. There seems to be too much loss. Um, and those are, those are difficult questions. You, know, the, you have the problem of evil, and of course you have the problem of good. If, you, if you're a Christian, you have the problem of evil because you say, wow, there's so much suffering. If you're not a Christian, in a sense, you have the problem of good. And you say, well, there's so much order. There's so much that actually works. There's so much beauty. There's so much joy. There's so much all of this all odds and for no underlying physical reason to allow for the possibility of life. And some of these developments intellectually, I think, ought to cause us perhaps to rethink that default materialism or atheism that we all inherited okay. out of the 19th so now, century. Now we have two modes of thought taking place here, as far as I can tell. You're, re you're talking about the evidence, the scientific evidence. I don't know what, how, how you respond to that, but this, I'm, not a, I'm a layman. That strike me as very compelling. That has to be taken into account. That new evidence can no more be unknown or undiscovered than can mode of thought number two. Just a moment. Remember the trenches in the First World War? Those were Christian nations. That was pre-Nazi. Those were all Christian nations engaging in slaughter of each other on an astonishing, massive oh, and scale. That's a huge question. Where were the statesmen so, to stop that? Where, where was God? It, it was, where was God? These are, it, these are things yeah, that also the history yes. cannot be unexperienced yeah, or unlived either. It wasn't either. just the Second World War. I mean, Christian faith for many people died in the Somme. Um, but, but I think that something has to be observed here which is, of what Stephen says, which is that if, if you're a person of faith, let alone a person of the Christian faith, whenever a new discovery comes up, you will want it to bolster the argument you have. Now, the problem by, I can say is that many atheists will take the same line, or, albeit the opposite way, which was that they will hope that it will bolster their case. My own view, of course, remains we just don't know. And it seems to me that Christians will want the answers to be Christianity. Atheists will want it to be atheism. But wow. Murray's good. <laughs> Murray's good. But the, the mode that our own age should try to be in should be to simply be open to these questions. I, I completely so, agree. So, hold on, hold on. I'm going to reassert control. And, and give the first question. Nope, 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 nope. <laughs> it, it'll get more interesting. Excellent. So to, to take this, here's what I'd like to know. What I'd like to pursue next is, what do we need, A, and B, what is intellectually tenable at this stage? In the, the scientific discoveries cannot be unknown, and the horrifying experiences of the 20th century cannot be unlived and should not be forgotten. Okay, two quotations. George Washington, and this is coming to you, George Washington farewell address, reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. National morality, he's talking about an old fashioned idea, virtue. Tom Holland in Dominion, in the ancient world, quote, even skeptics who scorned the possibility that a fellow mortal might truly become a god were happy to concede its civic value, close quote. Whether you believe in Christianity or not, all three of you grant that that is our moral, that is, those are the moral waters we swim in. Do we need to behave as if it were true? How do you sustain the kind of civic virtue that everybody senses a decent society needs? Well, so this is, this is, this is the question that um, Nietzsche, who uh, 
whose writings were taken for given by the German government to soldiers marching to the, to the Western Front that he has posed most kind of challengingly, I think. And essentially, he is, he is saying, can you have um, Christian values, Christian ethics, Christian morality without Christian belief? And his, his take, which has been very, very influential on me, is that communists, socialists, um, liberals, Nietzsche was particularly contemptuous of the, um, the English-speaking brand of liberalism, um, are essentially um, Christians, monkey. They, they, they think that they have cast off Christianity, but they haven't really. And Nietzsche's great parable is that God is dead, that right. his corpse lies in a great cave, but that um, the corpse is so enormous that it continues to cast shadows and these flicker and change and, and we continue to see them. But that in the long run, this will generate convulsive process of change. Mm. And to, to be honest, that prophecy came true in, in the Third Reich. Um, it, came, it, it came true much faster than he thought. And I think the shock of that was so great for us that in a way, Nazism served to create a new mythology. So if you like, the shadow that is flickering on our current cave is actually the, the shadow of God that's flickering on the shadow of the cave, that flickering on the cave is, is, um, is, is a Nazi one. Mm. And rather than, rather than the devil now, we have Hitler. Rather than hell, yes. we have Auschwitz. Yes. And that is why we are haunt, so haunted by the Nazis. That's yes. why Douglas said, you know, I can't believe we got onto the Nazis already. We but do. I mean, we're bound to, because I yes. think before the, before the Third Reich, people, even if they weren't, Christian, they would accept Christ as the kind of the, the moral exemplar. And they would say, what would Jesus do? Mm. I think by and large, people now say, what would Hitler do and do the opposite? Yes. Yes. And people, people accuse, you know, the, the joke you go on, on, you know, you go on social media, within three seconds, people will accuse you of being a Nazi. This yeah. is the, the kind of the great joke. But the, it's, it's, it's similar to the readiness that, that people in earlier ages might have said, you know, to, to accuse people of being in hock with the devil or whatever. That was a rather clever non-answer. It's very interesting. It's a very, it's a very interesting answer. It's an answer he's, been, he's given before and it's a it's 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 very correct i mean chesterton chesterton makes the point again and again that it's it's easier to sort of deal with um get someone coming to the door so i have to get ready for him it, it's easier i make these videos while i do my work um it it's I mean, every, everything that Tom said there is true, and he's also right in that people people look at look at look at Nazism and do the opposite. But of course, the deep irony is that, as as Tom has mentioned in the Dellingpod podcast when 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 the book first came out, that in in this in this in this movement, um, you you sort of you sort of have to. Uh, so we've talked in the marriage crisis video a little bit about the fact that um, evolutionary psychology is is so prominent now, and and so you, you see all of these internal 
tensions because evolutionary psychology wants to say things, you know, the naturalist fallacy, of course, gets gets pointed out again and again, wants to say things that basically, well, that which, that which is original is, if not good, at least most enduring. And so if you, if you, if you look at the negation of Nazism, it's going to wind you in some interesting places when it comes to what we consider to be natural. Um, and, and, but we, we fear and dread and loathe the Nazis for deeply, deeply Christian reasons. Because the question that none of us ever really pause to think is, well, what was so wrong with what the Nazis said? What was so, what's so wrong with being racist? What's so wrong with trampling down the weak? By the way, our friend David Berlinski says the Holocaust was like the crucifixion. It was an event that changed everything. Yes. Which is fair. Of course. Right. I mean, um, in Celan's most famous poem, there's a terrible line. Well, well it, what's so interesting about that is you would have to ask why, because even though the Germans, of course, employed all sorts of um, modern ways of killing and exterminating, maybe human beings have been committing genocide for a very long time. And you know, the little, the little quip about African tribes. Well, before, before slavery, before colonialization, you almost get the picture that they were just out there, out there harvesting the food and that you didn't have um, deeply violent genocidal wars, um, which, which, are, which are going on in every continent. It almost, it almost makes people imagine that Europe is the only place where they had wars. Um, no. <laughs> so... The Holocaust having changed everything, maybe what it did was well, but I, I don't know that I don't know that it caused more of a meaning crisis than the battle than the trenches of World War One. It's just that maybe it ripped it ripped the pretense off of our self righteousness and showed that well we don't just kill when the other side has a fighting chance. We even kill when our victims have no chance at all. And, and again, that shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone. Aber Tod ist ein Meister auf Deutschland. Death is a master from Germany. All right, so back to, while I've got these two Englishmen all around this side. So Charles, King, now King Charles, gives a speech. Douglas is now an American. I'm not an American. I reside. You reside in America. You reside in America. I, an pa Englishman I pass. Englishman yes. in New York. You stay. You don't pass for one second. You don't pass for one second. Charles, King Charles, it is the year 2022, and the evening his mother dies, the evening of the day on which he has become king, he gives an address to the nation in which he speaks about the special relationship of the crown to the Church of England. Mm in which his own faith resides. The role and the duties of monarchy also remain, as does the sovereign's particular relationship and responsibility towards the Church of England, the church in which my own faith is so deeply rooted. This is what? A hopeless anachronism? Useful to the nation to continue some sense of continuity with the Christian, with the English Christian inheritance. What do you if, do with this? If I could try to tie that up with what you said earlier about, and of course, Thomas Please. Jefferson took the, the view that 
the civic virtues of Christianity were such that you could pretend to do it effectively, even if you didn't do the believing. And there's an interesting, I mean, there are people who believe in belief. I might be one of them. It's, it's something that uh, people can do. It's a good thing. It's all, all the not, data, not crazy position all the data shows world, right? that you're going to be happier if you're a believer and, and, and much more. Um, in, 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 in Britain, the established church has a very distinctive function, which is to effectively um, uh, own the uh, own reign in. How would you put it? Um, temper somehow, temp yes, temper the enthusiasm of religion, contain it within the state. It's, it was a very important uh, um, statement that he made. Uh, King Charles had in the 1990s toyed with this idea that he would, rather than take the title defender of the faith, would somehow be defender of faith. Right. And this, and this, this is interesting because, of, of course, our own age has got a lot of sort of syncretic religion running through it. You know, um, hybrids of bits yeah. of Christianity, a yeah. bit of Buddhism, a bit of usually a bit of quite a large bit of Buddhism, and um, and there was a sort of idea maybe he's going to do that. In which case, several things, including the established church, would have actually been in serious trouble. Right. He resisted that. He did a thing I think which is correct is to say no. This is the, the this is one of the titles I've inherited, and I'm the defender of the faith. And now, now it's really hard to really sort of suss this out because it was easier, for example, if you had, let's say, an emperor in Constantinople or a bishop in Rome. You can sort of rally around that and define the faith. Um, but even when, with Protestantism and denominationalism, your, your, your question of categorization, which prominent, which um, features fairly prominently in, in the Peterson Verveke conversation, is, is there to sort of dog you. And that's just what we've inherited in England, in Britain. Okay. So, so, I mean, just, just on specific, specifically on um, the mystery of uh, royalty and Christianity, I think that one of the problems for, for institutional Christianity for the churches is that in a way they've been too successful, mm -hmm. that their teachings have, in a sense, been nationalized. So particularly in, in European countries, perhaps more than the United States, but still in the United States, um, education, health, all these kind of things that previously were uh, the responsibility of churches have now, you know, they've been secularized. And in a sense, the church is... Well, well, and to go back to where we were talking about with respect to anti-racism or the woke or all of these other religions that come up, whether like in Rami, the guy puts a jewel in his head and now he's an elf and his... Uh, his his partner is a furry, so she's there meowing, and he's dressing up in Lord of the Rings elf costumes. And um, there's a, there's a, but at the same time, for society, you need a coherence where it all sort of hangs together. Self has been secularized. Mm. It's, it's, it's the, the instinct, uh, the responsibility of churches have now, you know, they've been secularized. And in a sense, the church itself has been secularized. Mm. It's, 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 the, the instinct, I think, of uh, certainly in, in a national church like the Church of England, of many of the priests, is to um, identify with the, uh, the kind of the preponderant ideology of the, of the age, which is a secular one. My own personal feeling is that that's... And of course, when the, when, the, when the pandemic took off, Holland was on Unbelievable and other places talking about the fact that 
well, do we do we really need the church to s just mimic what the national national health service is saying? Horrible mistake, mm -hmm. and that Christianity is nothing if it's not spectacularly odd. If 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 the strangeness, the weirdness, the mystery is not given space to breathe, and that comes across and, so beautifully in your writing, Tom. Well, but the, but, the, but so it struck the, the me. The preface of your book uh, it, it really is jar jarring because if you swim in Christian waters. And you forget just how how odd it is. How odd it but, is. But yeah. but it struck me very powerfully with the funeral of the queen, mm. that um, people were being touched by the strangeness of it, mm. by the sense that you know the queen was anointed. This is a ritual that goes back um, a thousand years in England, but ultimately goes back to ancient Israel, to to David and to Solomon. Yes. And people felt themselves touched and moved by something strange that they didn't understand. And it was a rare moment where a sense of the weird was allowed to enter into the very heart of the state and, and people were stirred by it. And I think that it would be a terrible mistake for the new king if he, you know, if, look, if presuming he wants the monarchy to survive and indeed the Church of England to survive, if he was the stint on the element of the strangeness within the coronation. I think but, but that strangeness, again, to come back to where this video started in terms of the enchanted, you cannot have the enchanted without the strange. Because to go once again back to um, back to McGilchrist or going, quoting Owen Barfield, how is it that the more able man becomes to manipulate the world to his advantage, the less he can perceive any meaning in it? This is a paradox that has often been noted and has sometimes been attributed to fundamental perversity, a sort of pure cussedness and natural in human nature. The world has changed since the philosopher Owen Barfield, who's who's um, um, wrote these words 35 years ago, but the paradox, as he calls, has gotten no less resolved. Um, once we sort of are able to manipulate the world, once we have it, and this gets then into the seculum, once we sort of have it between our hands, it's disenchanted. And then suddenly, and that's, I think, when you get to the question of whether or not the Holocaust, to what degree did the Holocaust really change the world? In many ways, we had God to blame until we did it. <laughs> we had God to blame for um, giving giving his chosen people a very difficult time for centuries, much of it documented. Um, now we have no one but ourselves to blame. I think he should absolutely I blame agree, us. But yeah. I've got a very quick observation as well, if I may. Um, I completely agree with what Tom just said. There's a specific difficulty for Christians, which I, I, in certain other religions doesn't exist. And let me give an example, which is Judaism. Uh, uh, some years ago, I said to a rabbi friend, an Orthodox rabbi friend, I said, would you, a rather rude question, but I said, would you agree that many people who come to your synagogue do not believe in God? And he said, uh, oh, most I'd have thought. And I said, well, what lesson do you draw from that? And he said, this year in the UK, 98% of British Jews will be celebrating the holy days. Now, I say that because in Christian terms, when we, we, there are reasons why Jews can be practicing without being believing. And there was a debate a about believing and deal. belonging. Well, yes, but what does it mean to be a Christian who wants Christian tradition to continue, mm -hmm. but cannot go to the church or thinks other people can go for them? To go back to my videos that I've been making about positive world, neutral world, negative world, 
the video I made about um, about the Christian Reformed Church and same-sex marriage. There's a natural need if you are a minority, whether that be a minority religion. Again, we, we talked about pluralism and the need to have agreement in order to actually inhabit an enchanted space. I A very common question I get from people is they say, I want to believe in God. I want to believe in the resurrection. And I want to believe all the weirdness that Tom Holland has just said Christianity should have. I want to believe these things. How can I do that? I don't find myself naturally doing it because we don't choose our beliefs. Uh, Verveke and Peterson talked about that. We don't choose our beliefs. Our, our beliefs are... Our, the way we derive our beliefs is enchanted as well. Where and you know Calvinism talks about that. We've, we're given belief by the Spirit of God. It's a gift of God for us. So, and my advice to them is, okay, go to church. Well, this, gosh, you know, what do you mean go to church? Is that Sunday morning? How often do I have to go? The more you want to believe, um, <laughs> if you, the more you go, the more you'll believe. Probably. <laughs> because you're not going to believe without a thick community around you. And again, it's it's not just sort of bullshitting yourself. That, that's not the point, because you, you're going to have to go through all of those questions within the community. The community is going to have to be compelling. And your experience in it is going to have to be enchanted. Because again, Tom Holland brought in the strangeness of it. If you're a countercultural community and you value that community, you will practice the holy days of that community because you will know that that's important. And so I've been mentioning this this Rami show that I've been watching on Hulu. He wants to be Muslim. It's so in the second season he goes to Egypt, and because he's looking for himself, and he, he expects to go to Egypt and find. An Islamic country, and one of his first shocks is he meets his cousin, and his cousin is so excited because here's his cousin from New York, and he's going to show him off at the greatest clubs. And we're not going to go to the mosque to pray. We're not going to do any of this 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 Muslim stuff. We want we want the religion of America, basically. So there's all these subtle dynamics that goes on within the religious frame, and so to have the to so so if you're a Jewish minority and you really value your culture and and whether or not you have this experience of believing in God that you're sort of looking at others and saying, well, they really believe and I don't believe, and there are, there are telltale signs of that, those are still going to be issues. All right. Well, this is what I appreciate about these two gentlemen so much is that they both have this deep appreciation of the importance of Christianity and, and genuine belief in God, and at least in Doug's case, Douglas's case, sorry, can't quite get themselves over the line to belief. I don't quite know where, where Tom stands on that, but I, I'm used to engaging these uh, very angry. Uh, did, did, did you watch those two? Go, go back. Go back. Watch, watch, watch them. I, I don't know, of course, but I think Tom and Douglas are, are in very similar spaces. Just watch, get watch those two. themselves over the line to belief. I don't quite know where, where Tom stands on that, but I, I'm used to engaging these uh, very angry uh, atheists who hate Christianity and hate belief in God. But uh, in, a, in a piece I did for the Jerusalem Post last summer, uh, <clears throat> eulogizing the great physicist Stephen Weinberg, 
I talked about this, that there was the, the old new atheists, you know, the Richard Dawkins and Weinberg was one of them, uh, Sam Harris and uh, Christopher Hitchens. But there's a kind of new new atheist, uh, people who authentically lament the loss of Christian belief in the Christian or a, of a theistic foundation, a Judeo-Christian foundation for our culture, but authentically. Do we really want to call them new atheists? I, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I think let's, let's just leave, let's just leave the new atheists, the new atheists, and let's think of a new, new, new name. Also can't themselves come to belief. And I, I have hoped that my own work might open up that discussion in a new way so, because so. we've inherited all this baggage from the enlightenment and the rise of scientific materialism you know figures like darwin marx and freud from the late 19th century who so shaped the worldview of the 20th century and yet i think there's there is a, a very legitimate and genuine uh, intellectual uh, opportunity to to reassess these deep questions apart from the baggage of the religious wars and uh, you know, within Christianity, I think there is, there is a framework for explaining even how Christians can end up resorting to violence against each other because there is this deep uh, uh, teaching about the fallenness of man and that, that affects us all. The human nature problem is not eliminated simply because you believe in Christianity. But on the other hand, I think the materialists lack the intellectual framework to account for the extraordinary evidence that we have of design in the universe and of the, the, for the creation of the universe and these fundamental questions that we have assumed science has already uh, adjudicated are, I think, being reopened by discoveries that have frankly shocked us. And even Richard Dawkins has acknowledged this. Um, it, it, last summer he talked about the, the, he was knocked sideways with wonder at the discovery of the, the digital signal or the digital processing of information inside cells. It was not anything so, he expected from his blind, pitiless processes. Stephen, let me hit you. Yeah. And I do mean to hurl it at you. Excellent. With a passage from St. Paul. This is 1 Corinthians 15. Speaking of odd, I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve, after that he was seen of... All these imaginative... I, I like my Paul with a little less hair, thank you. 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, close quote. So St. Paul is right there ruling out the easy ethical option. Christ is the great teacher, we can take certain messages, uh, follow his exa example, what would Jesus... No, that's not all. He is insisting that Christians believe in the resurrection well, He's, he's of appealing a, to the of testimony of eyewitnesses. And he is appealing to the testimony. He is saying, in effect, he, if you don't believe me, there's still several, several hundred people still alive. He's appealing to the testimony that had the greatest weight in Roman law and still has the greatest he's, weight in our law, which is eyewitness he's, testimony. He's appealing to what we and, would call today an empirical basis for faith. Okay. And we so, have ruled that possibility out largely because of developments in Enlightenment philosophy, uh, the secular Enlightenment philosophy, people like Hume who said that miracles were impossible, and, uh, and because of developments in the 19th century in science which suggested that God did not exist, the rise of materialism. The, the, the miraculous accounts in the Bible are, this is going to get interesting. A great offense to the intellect of people who have been, who, you know, who have right. been trained in schools like we've all been to. 
because we've inherited a worldview that says miracles are impossible. And that worldview is materialism. The probability of a miracle given scientific materialism or scientific naturalism or scientific atheism as your worldview is zero because a miracle is an act of God. If God does not exist, there's no possibility of, of, of a miracle. And then when you read those docu the, the documents of the, uh, of the, the Tanakh, the, the, the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, you necessarily have to simply deduce that the, 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 the events that are recorded could not possibly have happened because there, there, because miracles because are impossible and there is, no, there is no God to exist. Right. But if there is now a case, and I, I, I don't think there's ever not been a case for the, reali the, the, the reality of God, but I think the case has gotten so strong and scientific atheism has become so, itself so weird in opposing it. We, we now have the multiverse hypothesis as, an, as a, an alternative to the evidence of design we have in the fine tuning. When I, my main work has been about the evidence of design in, at the foundation of life in biology, the digital code that's in the DNA. And to explain that, this, the, the, uh, the chemical evolutionary theorists and secular evolutionary biologists are, have not come up with an evolutionary account of the origin of information. Some of them are now talking about the, the information coming from a space alien, the, the so-called panspermia hypothesis. And so you're getting this very strange way in which it's now scientific atheism that is engaging in the formulation of ever more, more yeah, epicycles of, of, of strange so hypotheses. You, so your point is... My point that, is the belief in theism is again incredible. Let, let me frame it up. Yeah. Your point is that Big Bang, the discovery of a fine-tuning, the discovery of unbelievably complex code, even in the simplest forms of life, that makes a belief in resurrection, Orthodox Christianity, intellectually respectable. It makes a belief in theism very credible. And if there is, and that changes the prior probability, as the philosophers would say, of a miracle. And that means you have to reassess those, those, uh, those biblical texts on straight up historical grounds without having a presupposition that precludes the possibility that there is historical support for the events recorded therein. Do you buy any of this? Well, what I, what I would say, I, to, to slightly spin what Stephen's saying in, in, in a different way, All right. is that. Um, it's not as though secular liberals, whether they're atheist, agnostic, or whatever, aren't equally capable of believing weird, mad things. Um, and, you know, and, and talking about, about you know, alien seedings, that, I mean, that, that's quite odd. But I would say that also very odd is, say, a belief that human beings have rights, the idea that human rights exist. Um, most people in the West believe in human rights, but human rights don't exist objectively. I mean, they're, they're as fantastical as believing in angels. And they have a very specific, you know, their origins are very specifically rooted in Christian theology. It's, it's, it's formulated by the lawyers who are in the wake of the great revolution of the 11th and 12th century, are trying to construct a fabric of framework of law for the Christian people. And they look to the scriptures and they see that Christ teaches that those who are rich should, um, you know, give shelter and food and water and clothing to the poor, and they deduce from that the instinct that the poor therefore have rights to the... He's, he's an artful dodger, that, that Holland. ...these things, and this sets in train this incredibly fertile notion that human beings have rights. Now, people today are very reluctant to face up to the idea that this is a very culturally contingent idea rooted in Christian theology, medieval Catholic theology. And so they say, well, you'll find uh, the you know, human rights it's in China or Greece or Rome or whatever, but it isn't. And I think that um, what I have found meditating and reflecting on the, the incredible inheritance of 
Christian theology and practice and liturgy and all kinds of things is that I want to believe in the things that I believe in as a secular humanist. I want to believe in human rights. And if I can believe in that, there are times where I think, well, I might as well be hanged for a, for a sheep as a lamb. If I can believe in human rights, then why can't I believe in angels? Can, can we, Stephen and I push you then on your belief? Well, so as a historian, there, in the West, you are the heir to two different traditions. You're the heir to the Greek tradition of history, in which, to be honest, the gods don't play much role. Certainly, they're present in Herodotus. They're, they're virtually invisible in Thucydides. But um, you also have the, uh, the tradition of history that you get in, in, uh, in the Bible, where events are shaped by the hand of God. And those are traditions that feed through into the Western inheritance of, of, of history. Um, I would absolutely identify myself as a, as a historian with the Greek tradition. I don't think that it's my role to, um, to identify the hand of God. I, I try to explain um, Christian history. In so certainly not in the tradition of Homer. In human terms. But having said that, I have found the experience of, of, of immersing myself in the history of Christianity and the examples of Christian history often to be unsettling, you know, it often is. But I think, why do I, even when I'm unsettled by Christian history, I realize... Well, and, and that's interesting because he's also the guy who can again and again and again and again make the point that it's got to be weird. And it's like, okay, you wanted weird, you got weird. Um, what what, what exactly? And, and, you know, I don't say this... I don't say this in any way to just demean and dismiss. I mean, anybody who's listened to this channel knows I'm a huge, I'm, 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 I'm a huge fan of Tom Holland. There's no question about that. But it's, it's, it's almost, um, you know, it's almost Jesus' complaint in Matthew 11. Um, you know, did you, did you want a mourner? I can. Did you want a, did you want a, did you want a moralist scourge? I can be a scourge. Do you want a celebrative? Dancer, I can dance. Um, what 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 are you looking for? And and again, I'm not asking that anybody be disingenuous, or I'm not trying to bully anybody. Any anybody who watches um, me knows that that's that's I I in no way would want to bully anybody into as as if it could happen these days. But at at some point. You know, and, and you, there's always the back and forth with respect to Jordan Peterson, too. At, at some point, at some point, one just gives in and it happens. It's 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 a lot like it's a lot like falling in love. And uh, there was a TikTok today that was on Twitter about some woman who was talking to her TikTok fans about she's been going out with this one guy for, I don't know, six or nine weeks. And they promised not to have sex with anybody else while they're together now. But then she met she went on another date with. Uh, um, with a guy who had a better, you know, had a better um, banter game, and so now she's having second thoughts. I mean, it's we are we are not masters of our own houses, um, so it's uh, I don't know. I, I find this whole thing just endlessly fascinating. Realize that it's for Christian reasons. 
if if I'm if I'm that, unsettled so if I'm unsettled by so the Inquisition, it's yeah. because they are killing innocent. You know, it's it's powerful people killing innocent an in, innocent person. And you know, the, why the, do I why the, am I revolted by that? The cruelty of the ancient world. Well, well, the, but, the, but, the, the Greco-Romans would not have worried about those same types of events well, in the as, way as, we do. As Dostoevsky, you know, in yes, his great yes. his great story about the Inquisitor, yeah. Christ, you know, if if you as an atheist are enshrine the Inquisition as a model of something horrific. It's for Christian reasons. It's because you are, you, are, you are shaped by a culture that has had an innocent person put to death by a state apparatus okay. at the heart. Well, can I, can I so, just, yes, so, yes, yes, yes. And, and, and so therefore, I feel that my, the, the, the kind of the bundle of my instincts, my beliefs, my presumptions are generated by this incredibly mysterious Christian inheritance. And I am very, very much, I'm very open to accepting that there is a strangeness there that I don't want to deny. All right, you know what? May I, Thank you. May I That's, talk about two types of strangeness at some point, but Douglas oh, has yes, been trying yes, to get Yes, yes, you in. get dibs no, on two, point, two points of strangeness. By so, the way, when you quoted St. Paul, and yes. you were talking about that, am I right, uh, Tom, who, who's the, the ancient uh, um, who sees St. Paul and recorded it? Somebody, isn't there? A, there's a physical description of St. Paul. I don't think there? so. There are there right? are medieval letters in which yeah. Seneca and St. Paul are supposed yeah. to have communicated, but I don't think it's interesting. Any. Douglas, so, anyway. so, can, so you would not, uh, A, it is possible, but you do not yourself. It is possible for a with it intellectual of the year 2022 to believe in a resurrection. Be is with it still with it? I, I, I just wonder. It's not possible. See, it's none of my business, and I shouldn't even be asking that question because somehow or other that violates I think all protocols. Things are possible. I, I mean, oh, this guy's getting into Justin Brierly territory here. But you see I, what I'm saying. I, 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 I think this that is a very being a, claim. being a philosopher um, um, and uh, practicing believing Christian has been. Uh, uh, attention for many years now. I mean, uh, it's 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 not as though they don't overlap or can't overlap, but it definitely suffers attention that it wouldn't have done, say, 400 years ago. Um, the, my main problem is that nobody wants to admit um, what they don't know, and there's a there's a tendency towards dogmatism on all sides uh, in our age, and one of those. The consequences of that is, for instance, I mean, Christianity is, if you use it as a basis and an explanation for, for life, you also have to explain why the religion's central tenet is the, um, the complete inverting of, of the thing we know most of all, which is death. Uh, this is in itself a massive claim, but it's fueled 2,000 years of faith. Now the <laughs> Murray's a sharp cookie. I really like Murray. Claiming that the whole cosmos can be, can rip, as it were, is is what has fueled the Christian faith. It is that it is an unbelievable thing that has happened, which and, and that gets earlier to that the speech of, of Tom Holland's that I talked, where you have the um, and and of course Peterson goes into this with Jung, Jung Peterson's assertion that Jung was basically saying that the 
the church looked at the world and or people looked at the world and basically said, you know, we're, we're, we're waiting for the new heavens and the new earth and they don't seem to come. And with Christianity, there's always, well, it's just around the corner. It's just around the corner. And it's been, they've been expecting it just around the corner for a very long time. Maybe it's time for us ourselves now to, to make heaven on earth, to create utopia, nowheresville. Millions and millions of people still on earth, of course, believe. But if I can say, this is why, this is why I, I favor that, um, the argument that uh, Habermas made some years ago, this, what he described as the awareness of what's missing, because it's the other flip side of that. The, the unwillingness of the modern West to admit that there is this God-shaped hole in the culture. We have songs where people talk about angels. People talk about being reunited after death. And what say, in what metaphysical system are you doing this? Like, what's the game you're playing here? I would just like people to at least concede that they need to use real care. They need to live in the questions in the hope that at some point they live their way into the answer. You still have dibs. I'm coming next to you, no Stephen. No worries. Here's Roger Scruton, Douglas. And the question, of course, is going to be, do you subscribe to this? Anybody who goes through life with an open mind and heart will encounter moments that are saturated with meaning, but whose meaning cannot be put into words. These moments are precious to us. When they occur, it is as though on the winding, ill-lit stairway of our life, we suddenly come across a window through which we catch sight of another and brighter world. Yes. A world to which we belong, but which we cannot enter. There are many who would dismiss this world as an unscientific fiction. I am not alone in thinking that it is real and important. What a quote. What a quote. And in this, that was, that was very good. I did a conversation with Ken Lowry of Climbing Mount Sophia. And I'm sure it'll be out any day now. I don't know the rhythm by which he releases conversations on his channel. But, um, you know, we got into that, the narrative and that which is beyond narrative. What a, what a quote. You could sign your name to that, couldn't you? I, I actually have the volume of essays that that appears in as a preface, which introduction you know by me. And you know perfectly well that's exactly what yes. I Um <laughs> Uh, I think it's a beautiful expression of something that Roger intuited, and so do I. Um, it, it is, and that it, is deeply Christian, isn't it? Well, well I, I, Not think, I, 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 or? I, I, I think it, it, it's uh, 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 somebody feeling that there is a nymph in a stream in Greece in the fifth century would probably say oh, well, I thought I had Holland corralled at last, um, and now he's off on nymphs. Go ahead. Well, <laughs> well, but, you know, in fairness to Tom there, this again was where Tom started at the beginning of this conversation, talking about the disenchanted, the disenchanting, the, chis, the disenchanting thread within the Christian tapestry. And you know, the, the idols of Egypt are stock and stone. And the, um, the you shall have no other gods before me, you shall not make a graven image, the, the biblical creation story where it's not that the other functionaries, as John Walton calls them within the creation story, are um, unconscious necessarily, but they are not the kinds of gods within a metaphysical realm that you find in the other creation stories. So, you know, there's there's tension in here. 
Here's, here's what I say about it. Is, 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 is there, Roger is, is referring to a very important instinct, which is the thing that should always jolt a, a true atheist, which is that everybody in their lives will experience moments of um, awesome feeling of some kind, transcendence. It might happen with of seeing a person it might feel in in, in and, and of course the atheists account for that say well that's just a psychological factor that's those are the chemicals of the brain and this gets back to the abolition of man the joe rigney conversation the joe rigney presentation that i did a video on not too long ago uh, eros it might be in human love it might be in a, in a place in a building it might just be waking up in the morning um, everybody at some point in their life has to contend with this question of what is this thing that I feel to be true and cannot reach. Christians would obviously say it's a Christian God. I think the rest of us have to say we'll live in the question. Stephen, you've got a, speaking of questions. Well, a couple things. Um, the, the, the arguments that first persuaded me of theism were actually philosophical arguments. And there has been, in the last 30 or 40 years, a tremendous renaissance in philosophy towards belief. You have major figures like Richard Swinburne at Oxford or Alvin Plantinga at Notre Dame and this whole Midwest school. So there are plenty of philosophers. And Calvin. Alvin was at Calvin before, you know, those Roman Catholics wooed him over to that institution that's at least, least Catholic in name. Who now are very uh, convinced theists, uh, whether they be Christians or Jews or something else. Uh, and I, I think the, 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 one of the huge questions that we've inherited from the Enlightenment is the question of knowledge. How is that we know the world around us at all? And it, it turns out that, that secular materialist thought has been unable to uh, provide a justification for belief in the reliability of the human mind. Uh, and, and that has led to this radical relativism that has expressed itself both philosophically and, and... And that point that he made about the not only the reliability of the human mind, you'll find Peterson and Verveke touching on that, but from the other direction. The fact that we can reliably seem to map, there's a, there's a, um, there's there's in a sense a what why is it we can decode we can re decode the world around us productively in, in the culture and one of the best reasons to believe in the reliability of the mind which was one of the reasons that led to the scientific revolution was that our minds are made in the image of god who is a rational creator who has endowed the physical world with uh, a a kind of order and rationality that we can perceive because there's a principle of correspondence between the way he made our minds and our ability to perceive the, the, the reason and the, and the order and the design that he put into nature. The, this was the key idea of intelligibility that inspired much of the scientific revolution. Um, and so the problem of knowledge, I think, is solved elegantly by the, by the presupposition of theism. You know, so there's, a, there's an argument. The argument that persuaded me was sometimes called the argument from epistemological necessity. Uh, St. Augustine put it this way, we believe in order to know. If you believe first in the, in the existence of a creator who made our minds as a reliable instrument, instrument to know the world that he made, 
we also then ha can have confidence in our ability to know things. And this was the, the basis of the scientific revolution. Um, so I think philosophically, there, there, just as there is scientifically, I think, movement back towards a theistic position, I think that same thing is happening in science. I think in philosophy. In philosophy, right, yes. Right. Now, I take very seriously what Douglas said earlier about the, the problem of confirmation bias, that we all want to believe the thing that confirms the beliefs that we already have. Um, there, there is a way, I think one of the benefits of philosophical training is that it allows the assessment of arguments irrespective of, of the motives of the arguer. And I accept that there is a motive on behalf of, uh, of, of believers, of Christian and other theistic believers, to believe in God because it, it, it helps answer some of those existential questions and it, allows a, it gives us a hope for the afterlife. We all want that. On the other hand, there's also a motive that's been often pointed out for people who, dis, you know, who don't believe because it, not believing in, uh, in God also releases us from uh, a sense of moral accountability to a higher authority. And we'd all like to be autonomous at some points in our lives at least. Now, I think ultimately uh, uh, those two things are a wash and should be treated as a wash. We should set those motives aside and try to assess uh, the case for or against a transcendent deity based on the evidence and based on some very fundamental philosophical arguments. That's what I attempt to do in the book, Return to the God Hypothesis. I think there are a lot of people who are in the field of philosophy, philosophy of science, epistemology, who are really wrestling with these deep questions at that level and trying to extricate them from both the cultural baggage and the intellectual baggage of the last few centuries and to reassess the God question uh, afresh in light of evidence and apart from some of these things that are not strictly speaking uh, evidential matters or matters of reason, but rather of cultural baggage. If, if I was... I think there are a lot of people who... There's an, so he, he sort of walked us through how he arrives at this. And I think there's a lot of people that aspire to walk this way because I think this particular approach has a high degree of cultural approval. I just don't think most people do it this way. They, they, they just, they don't. And, um, not to take anything away from his argument, but if you watch, you know, if you watch Tom and Douglas while he's talking, they're just kind of they're kind of relaxing. Whereas earlier, if you watch them, they're you know they're sort of we get gripped in different ways. As a militant atheist, I would want to push back against Stephen and his colleagues by saying, even if you find what you think you're looking for it doesn't necessarily mean the christian god you might, oh, yes. you might and 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 this would seem to me to quite but if i was in stephen's position it does a separate and show. if yeah. i was in stephen's position and leaning on the secular atheists i think the thing i would be asking them is there is a modern understanding of 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 yourself that doesn't ring true with your feeling of yourself so for instance uh uh, we don't Feeling like our, our sense of ourselves. We, and now Tom might argue this is because we've just inherited this from Christianity. But I would, yeah. Douglas, I would. You would. He would, <laughs> you would. He's made but, that rather clear. But, yeah. but, but I would suggest that many of the modern materialist um, understandings of ourselves, the sense that there's no particular purpose and so on, doesn't ring true with the sense people have of themselves, right. which is that there yeah. must be yeah. something in ourselves that is 
extraordinary and it must have meaning and purpose. And either we're meaning-seeking beings and there is no meaning or there is meaning. But it, it doesn't sit well with us when we're told you're just, for instance, a consumer. You would go, I'm what? It just, it, we feel ourselves to be something else. And I would lean on, well, what is that? Well, and this is why it's so much more interesting to, to talk to, to you than it is to talk to Richard Dawkins, because they, 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 the, 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 the ardent scientific atheists, the new atheism, which was just a repackaging of late 19th century scientific materialism, um, has written off all of these things. It, it, it's, it's blind and deaf to the things that are truly human about us. We all sense that there's something more than blind, pitiless indifference at work. And, uh, and I, I think wrestling with that is, is, where, is, is the, the, the thing we all should be doing. Yeah. I think also a, a case can be made for the significance of Christianity that um, enthusiasts for evolution would, would accept. That who would accept? Enthusiasts for, the, for theories of evolution would accept that would, mm. materi materialists who are in favor of, who believe in theories of evolution. Tread and, carefully. Well, he knows this ground. Okay, but what I would say... And those who love dinosaurs? So what I would say is that, um, objectively speaking, by whether measured in terms of adherence now or the influence that it's had on the course of global history, Christianity is the most successful explanation for what human beings are doing, what life is for, why we were created, why there is suffering, all these things, you know, Christianity has offered human beings the most successful explanation for that. But you and know at the very I, least, I and at the to, very I least, want to at the very least. Say, yes, and I think it may be true, but you won't Well, well, if, if, if you, you know, I mean, on, on, on the materialist level, you He might... went full Justin Brierley right there. I don't even know if Justin goes that far. Just, 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 Justin always asks the question, but. You might say, well, it's an adaptive strategy and therefore Based on the terms of how successful it's been, it's certainly worth considering. You could frame it that way, Tom. You could frame it it's that way. It's certainly worth considering. But, but there's I a, consider there's a philosophical that a triumph way. to no, get you there. No, no, that was well said. And it, you, you could frame it as a, a, a successful adaptive strategy. Or if you look at it philosophically, you could say that, that the Christian world and life view has a comprehensive explanatory power, both about human failing and about the evidence for the reality of God that is unique, and I think that's a reason to believe it. You get, you get a word, and then I want to close us by going back to Matthew Arnold, okay. if I may. Is that fair? Just a very quick observation, which I yes. do think we need, to, we need to acknowledge, which is we are talking, of course, about the West and Western faith. At the yes. moment. And uh, Tom, certainly, I know, has, has, has traveled, has seen the experience of the beleaguered churches in the Middle East, as I have, yes. and I have seen in our own day Christian faith of a kind that our predecessors would have recognized and we don't remember is going on. And if you travel to, as I have, northern Nigeria and you see people praying yes. the Lord's yes. Prayer and yes. saying, deliver yes. us from evil, and they were chased across the fields and they lost their brother the day before in a machete attack, these people are burning yes. with a faith that our predecessors would have recognized. Uh, well, absolutely, but I would say on top of that that what's been happening in Africa is a process of conversion akin to the conversion of uh, Western Europe and Northern Europe in the, first in, in, in the early Middle Ages. We are living in one of the great ages of Christian evangelism. Yes. And I would say also that um, we're living through, so there are two 
great, I, I think future historians of religion will look back at this age and say there are two great kind of convulsive currents, one of which is radical Islam, which is in everybody's faces, it's part of the headlines. Yes. The other is Pentecostalism, which is below the surface, but is blaze, you know, I've, it's a great spirit rush. I mean, that's what it is. It's the, it's the blaze of the spirit. And that is transforming, uh, you know, it's, it's not only uh, converting people to Christianity, but it's also, say, transforming the balance between Catholicism and Protestantism in, in Latin America. Um, so it, this is an age of very vital Christian faith. Okay, so I'll, I'll leave a little extra. So you've got the, uh, you've got the incentive to go to the original video and, and give them your click and, and give them your comment. And the, of course, the link to the original video is down in, in, the, in the notes. Very interesting, very interesting conversation. A lot of fun. I think part of what... Part, my frustration often with sort of, we've got the, um, and Peterson called them celebrity, celebrity atheists. Um, my, my frustration sometimes with the celebrity evangelists is... Okay, get them over the line, and then what? And and of course, I, yeah, I'm all I'm all for them. I, I'd love nothing better than to have Douglas Murray and and Tom Holland stand up and say, "I believe." Okay, um, and then what? Um, maybe, hmm, maybe a little clip from from Peterson and Verveke. You have as a final solution, in some sense, to that the acquiescence to that process. I, okay, so it, let, let me offer... Isn't that the... Sorry, but isn't that the ultimate version of your metagame? Yes. Yes, definitely. Definitely. Yes. Okay, so let, let, let me throw this... And there is a notion uh, of this in Christianity, especially in Eastern Orthodoxy. You see it with Gregory of Nys Nyssa, and, and, and you see it in, in Maximus, and uh, uh, it's this notion of epictasis, that we don't come to rest in God. Right. What God is, is God is the the meta-affordance so that we continually self-transcend through God. Yeah, yeah. This, is, this is the further up and further in. That's the Jacob's Ladder vision, I yes. think, too. Right. right. To ascend continually towards a, a destination that's infinitely receding. That's right. Right, and but, that grows as it recedes. But, and, but this is the thing. The infinity is not inaccessible to you, right? It, it, because the infinity is not just receding from you. It's also reaching towards mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. and, and this is reality. Reality is constantly shining into your frame with intelligibility mm -hmm. and constantly receding yeah. out into the mystery. Mm -hmm. and, and I think the... the and that's the, that's the parallel of the Greek idea of the Logos, I think, with the Judeo-Christian idea of the Logos. I think so, too. I mean, there's lots of people who, who won't like that. Uh, but I, I think the notion of the Logos um, that, it's, you know, especially as you see it coming through the Neoplatonic tradition and taken up into dialogos and to dialectic, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Think, I think that deeply converges... Uh, I mean, the I mean, the, the, uh, the Christian model is ultimately a model of that, and 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 this is you know I'm not going to try and <laughs> do anything, but the, the paradox of 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 the unity tr trinity is, is an attempt to somehow say there's something inherently dialogical I would argue yeah. about um, how we how we come into relationship with ultimate reality. Right, right, and, and that's uh, right, and, and it's an attempt to solve the problem of unity and multiplicity as well. Um, so I've been looking at the transformation. Okay. 
Maybe a good way to land this plane is with, it seems a little ironic, but Rosaria Butterfield on Beckett Cook's show, where she, where she tells her story a bit. So um, I started reading the Bible because I'm an English professor. It's not like I could go to a promise keepers rally and shove a microphone in somebody's face and say, how do you feel about, you know, patriarchy or something? So I started reading the Bible and I started meeting with Ken and Floyd. And, um, you know, I had a stick on my desk at the time that said I would rather be um, wrong on an important subject than right on a trivial one. And I've always felt that way. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a truth seeker. And um, Ken and Floyd and I met, I probably had maybe 500 meals at his house. That would be like, a that's like the short end of it. Um, wow. I met the entire, you know, church community. I saw the way his house functioned. Um, it was amazing, right? I mean, we would, we would talk about hard and heavy things. We would read the Bible. We would pray, we would sing psalms, um, we'd come back and do it again. And this was, you know, this was the 90s. This is New York. Um, my lesbian partner and I, we, that was, you know, we were so non-heteronormative. We would not use the word marriage, even if, you know, like, it's just, you know, just forget it. But, right. you know, our home was a lot like the Smith's home, except for, you know, we weren't Christians. But our home was open. Um, members of the gay community would would come in. In fact, in my gay community in New York, somebody's home was open every night of the week um, for food and fellowship and just to stand between you and suicide and you and another. Now, now it's helpful to know she's, she's sort of talking about a book where she talks about this. There's a lot more of this at the end of this video, but. You know, who's, you know, who's been diagnosed with AIDS now? You know, I mean, it was a scary time, yeah. a very scary time. And I couldn't help but to notice there was a there was a an aesthetic and a palpable difference between my house and Ken and Floyd Smith's house, and that's that my house was filled with anxiety and constant, uh, you know, frenetic political activism. And you know, at Ken's house, they would talk about hard things, but at a certain point, you know, they'd open the Bible they'd pray and they would do this thing called leave it at the cross. And then they'd go on and laugh and feast and have fun. And, and I got the sense that they weren't insomniacs either. They could sleep at night. Um, and I was, <laughs> I was intrigued by that. You know, I was intrigued by that. And I came to the Bible with a long list of things I just, I was mad about and I needed to work through. And Ken and Floyd agreed to work through with me, you know, just work through all of these points, you know, patriarchy, slavery, um, you know, just the these big these big life issues. These were not small things for me. I had committed my life. Now I'm a little cautious at this point with this video because some people are going to say, "Well, that's it's it's having all the answers," but I don't think that's really it. I think it's much more. She was she was attracted to the lifestyle. Which, which sounds ironic because obviously this conservative reformed family had a very different lifestyle than what she had, but they weren't afraid to go through the questions. I wonder if it's here. I mean, there's a line I want to get to. I don't remember if it's here or earlier. To standing with the disempowered and to living in a way that, that made this world a better place. And I was confident that the Bible stood against all of that. And mm -hmm. um, so anyway, in two years, I read the Bible through seven times. And wow. um, 
which sounds crazy, but I'm a, you know, that's what I do. So, um, and but why, by the way, while you're reading through the Bible seven times or even the first time, what were you, was it, were you getting it? Were you liking it? Like what, how are you reacting to it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I have a, I mean, I study hermeneutics. I, I, I'm fascinated by it. Um, in fact, I was really fascinated by it because I had never read it before. Um, you know, and I like a new book. I like reading new books, but I was fascinated by it because of the different hermeneutical voices you have in this book. I mean, it's a, it's a very meaty book, right? I mean, you've got the, um, the judicial law, and the moral law and the ceremonial law and and it's interwoven using literally every single genre that ever existed i mean that was fascinating to me like i i really that was really really interesting and so i was very excited about this book i was very excited to tear this book apart that's what i did and i enjoyed doing it and, and I'm, I'm not getting to the place i want to i want to i want to hear and but one of the letters came from ken smith it was an amazing letter. I thought this man is really smart. If I'm going to write a book about the religious right, this is the kind of person I need to understand. Um, and quite frankly, I looked at Ken Smith as my personal and unpaid research assistant. And so I thought, well, of course I'll have dinner with you. I'll have lots of dinners with you. I, I you know, do you mind if I take notes? Um, <laughs> and of course, Ken being a real Christian didn't mind at all. He didn't mind at all. Yeah. Um, and so he, um, he and his wife, Floyd, they just, they welcomed me into their world and they came into my world and they didn't act as though I was polluting them. And early on in our, in our uh, friendship, Ken said to me, there's a difference between acceptance and approval. And if you can live with that difference, I can live with that difference. I love um, that. And yeah, it was like, kind of teasing. Yeah, there's a difference between acceptance and approval. And then, obviously, I played the other place. In so many of these videos about trying to get people across the line, there's a sense of, and this is a very Baptist-y sense, I, I, I get, you know, and maybe that's not being fair to Baptists. I don't want to be unfair to Baptists, but, you know, there's an altar call and we're going to, it's a, it's a revival. There's an altar call. We're going to get you up in front. We're going to get you across the line. And then, you know, and, but then the question is, and then what? Well, and then on to where Peterson and Verveke were just sort of knocking on the door of further up and further in, into Christ into um, this this life in this age with its with with all of that and and again then back to what what she said about I'll just play it again because it was really good so non-heteronormative we would not use the word marriage even if you know like it's just you know just forget it but right. you know our home was a lot like the Smith's home, except for, you know, we weren't Christians, but our home was open. Um, members of the gay community would, would come in. In fact, in my gay community in New York, somebody's home was open every night of the week um, for food and fellowship and just to stand between you and suicide and you and another, you know, who's, you know, who's been diagnosed with AIDS now, you know, I mean, it was a scary time, yeah. a very scary time. 
and I couldn't help but to notice there was a there was a an aesthetic and a palpable difference between my house and Ken and Floyd Smith's house. And that's that my house was filled with anxiety and constant, uh, you know, frenetic political activism. And, you know, at Ken's house, they would talk about hard things, but at a certain point, you know, they'd open the Bible, they'd pray, and they would do this thing called leave it at the cross. And then they'd go on and laugh and feast and have fun. And, and I got the sense that they weren't insomniacs either. They could sleep at night. Um, and, I was <laughs> and that's where this faith comes around. That's where, you know, our heart, I know they, you know, Verveke and Peterson sort of poked at the resting because it's, it's, it gets into Genesis, it gets into Genesis two and the seventh day, the Sabbath day, the day of rest. And that's not simply a day to take a nap in the Christian form tradition or a day to um, cease from doing certain physical labor. I, I much prefer John Walton's take on it where that's a day of the commencement of the shalom, a commencement for the glory, a commencement for everything that creation had been leading up to that's a day for beginning to live the the joyful story as intended and it's the it's the feasting at the end of the battle it's the joy at the end of the struggle and the the christians in her story could wrestle with all the things and then finally laugh because it was not up to them finally to win the war or to rule the world or to that that they 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 were kept in the hands of their god and and whatever came they knew that's that's the faith that they had and it's it's the faith that looks beyond into all of those i made this point on the climbing mount sophia podcast it's the faith that looks beyond into you're shooting towards those ideals and you believe we're going to get there. And the resurrection isn't just a story of Easter and renewal and things like that. It's that I can participate in that resurrection. It's that even though I can't figure out how it's going to be or what the details are going to and what God's going to do with all of this other stuff. It's that me, even me, it's the language of the Hudberg Catechism. I participate in this resurrection. And it is, it is, it is a promise that I have so... I might lose this battle, I might lose my life, I might lose everything, but my life is hidden in Christ in heaven where moth and rust can't consume. And, and that then gives us a confidence and a peace that all of the activism cannot touch. So nice little ending to this video. Hope you've enjoyed it. Leave a comment.